that's how people become legends by creating moments in mm. ballroom you know not just walking one of the trophy anybody can win the trophy it's about the moments i always ask people say oh you're a legend i was like give me five of your moments give me five moments that i can i call them bitch i remember when <laughs> when i remember when it was like i remember when you did this i remember when you did that like i need five if I got five moments that no one can ever, that anybody can ever say, I would never ever forget that. Not to say that makes you legend, but that solidifies you in ballroom, you know? Hello and welcome to the Tripping Podcast. I'm Yasmin, your host, and I have to say a big thank you to everyone who's been enjoying and supporting the podcast so far. We're new in the game, two episodes deep, but we're coming in hot. Episode one with photographer Daryl Richardson talking about his project on the Afro-Mexican citizens of Costa Chica. And Daryl also shared his experience on being a person of color moving throughout the world and the stereotypes and narratives he's trying to change, not just through his work, but also through the trips he takes. Episode two, we caught up with writer Phoebe Lovett. Phoebe is someone who's moved around the world as much as I have with a bunch of extended stays and attempts at new life somewhere else. So we had a lot to talk about and I found our conversation really hit on some universal themes such as home, belonging and personal identity. So do go ahead and follow us on mixcloud.com forward slash tripping world or subscribe to these podcasts wherever you stream your podcast so you don't miss out on a thing. Which brings us to this episode, episode three. It features a conversation that Trippin's co-founder Sam Blenkinsop had with ballroom legend and historian Derek Ebony. The conversation took place in New York City on Christopher Street Pier, a place that significance became clear to Sam as he got, in his words, schooled on a late September's afternoon in this iconic spot. I caught up with Sam to get his takes on the whole encounter and have him introduce you to Derek. Derek Ebony is one of those kind of people who just knows how to tell a story. And to be honest, listening to this conversation between him and Sam makes me feel like I'm right there on the end of the pier. It's important to note that these conversations were had pre-COVID-19 and from all of us here at Trippin, we sincerely hope everyone's staying safe and sound. In a time where Trippin is off the cards for most, we're doing our best to bring the world to you through music, film, photography, food, and of course, right here on this podcast. This is a special episode with a real pioneer of one of the most expressive and community-focused cultures of our time. You're listening to the Trippin' Podcast. This week we're on the podcast running an incredible conversation that you had with ballroom legend Derek Murphy, aka Derek Ebony, out in New York City. So give us a bit of the backstory. What took you out to New York and how did you end up in contact with such an iconic figure in the voguing scene? Yes, yes. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. So I was in New York for a project we were working on with Adidas and I linked up with Mike Q, who's one of our community members out there, he's a DJ, runs a Wicked label and a night at uh, House of Yes in Williamsburg. And Mike was one of the guys that uh, was saying to me, if I want to learn about the places that are important to ballroom culture, then there isn't a better person to speak to than Derek. So he set up the, he set up the Connect and we headed down to Christopher Street Pier to have a chat. 
Um, my name is, uh, my government name is Derek Murphy. My ballroom name is Derek Ebony. Um, I've been in the ballroom scene since 1985. Um, I've walked numerous fashion categories over the years. I'm considered a legend in the ballroom scene. And on top of being a legend, um, I'm called the ballroom icon, which is the epitome of I oversee ballroom. I'm a legend for a category, but I oversee ballroom as a whole. And also too, I teach history, the ballroom history. And so they call me, the community calls me a ballroom historian. So if anything anybody needs to know about ballroom, they always call and contact me because I have all the knowledge, the history. I collected things over the years, over the decades. And I was also taught by the pioneers, the originators of the ballroom scene as I was a kid. So a lot of things got passed down to me. So for me, it was super important to meet at a place that was actually significant to the culture itself. Uh, so I was chatting to Mike and asking him, and he said that the pier on, on the Hudson was was the one. To be honest, though, like, if I'm real, yeah, it's like I hadn't even heard of it. Um, and so I just did a little research, and I found out the pier had been such a significant spot for for new york's lgbtq community it really been this place that people have been coming to for decades to to be free and to be open and just to be themselves so it felt right what it does for me is it pinpoints the exact moment for me when i realized who i was when i actually came down that street it ended up on that pier and saw actually crossing the West Side Highway and you see all these loads of people being free, being comfortable. It's like, oh, wow, I'm home. It's kind of a culture shock because you didn't know if you if you, you didn't know it existed until you got here. And you're like, this is a whole new world out here. It was my me walking through a door of freedom. That's what it was. And I think probably for a lot of people during the summertime. You know, um, people coming out at, at younger, very younger ages, and they're coming in. This is the first place that they found out and saw people that look like them, that act like them, similar to them, or people that were different from them, but still had a commonality. Mm. So it's definitely for everyone. It's still kind of that um, that crush, that threshold of coming out, of finding out who you are, and kind of figuring out who you are and what you like and what you don't like, <laughs> and who you like and who you don't like. Is definitely that that is definitely that place. It's a freedom. It's, it's a place of freedom. So I've known you for a minute, Sam, and I have to say I didn't really have you down as a voguing enthusiast, which is also why I find your conversation with Derek super interesting because I knew that it must have been like a window into a whole new world for you learning about this kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like Borum and voguing is definitely not something that I was overly familiar with. Um, but I was I was always amazed at the levels and the intricacies of the culture and and for me I'm super intrigued into into other people's realities so it was it was a wicked experience to sit down and and hear him describe all the different styles and we went straight back to the history of voguing where he explained where it originated from and he was showing me all the moves so I don't know if that's going to translate well into this podcast but hopefully <laughs> Um, for those that know the moves, can, you can actually relate to what he's referencing. Um, or, or if you don't, then you should definitely pull them up on YouTube just to get them visuals. So we want to go to back to the history of, of voguing. 
voguing started out of basically out of a dance of competing each other. And it was started, you know, by a person called Paris Dupree. Paris Dupree started voguing. And voguing was basically pantomime. It was, uh, what is the dance called? Capera. It was uh, something, another form of uh, movement. If, you, if anybody looks it up, it's called 52 Blocks. 52 Blocks is basically something that's done in prison. And it was about a movement like this. With the first, this is the first movement of Vogue when your hands start. So this is when you do 52 Blocks. 52 Blocks is always that. And 52 Blocks is always a blocking your opponent. Because if you're competing or voguing each other, you're trying to block your opponent from getting close to you or trying to lock you in a certain way. Um, calisthenics, um, ancient hieroglyphics, movements, and of course, emulating models at a magazine, a la Vogue. And that's what the common, that's what Vogue is, consists of a lot of different things. The original style of Voguing, which it was never called, it wasn't called all way, it was called pop, dip, and spin, or performance. Going back to that period of time that you asked me, when Ballroom left uptown and came downtown and new styles of voguing started to persist, we couldn't call it that. We had to call it old way and then we had to call it new way because now the new style of voguing was these calisthenics and stretches and six o'clocks and, you know, all these types of movements. It wasn't kind of the more popping movement, this and a third. So old way, new way, two different styles, but New Way was a, comes out of the original form of voguing, which is called pop dip and spin or performance, or something called Excalibur, which it was very, very precise, very ninja style of that. Um, voguing, is the, voguing is the epicenter of ballroom. So the other thing that I found super interesting talking to Derek was about how all the different houses had their own community. You know, it just seems really special because they're providing a safe space for the people to express themselves and, and to just to be themselves. There's a documentary called The Queen. And The Queen is basically a pageant. Pageant of basically what we call trans women, but they were drag queens. And in New York City, given in New York City. And Crystal LaBeja, who's the founding mother of Ballroom, she was actually competing. She was a black trans woman she was shunned and shaded while she was competing and she decided to walk off the stage. And her walking off the stage and protesting because she was basically picked a separate run, runner up, she went on a rant. And she went on a severe rant on everyone that was a part, the judges, all of these things. And what happened was is that she started, she realized at that moment to say, I need to start something for my own community because also at those pageants was basically uh, people of various colors, Latin trans women, white trans women, black women, and being the fact that she was more beautiful and knew she was more beautiful than that, she actually said, you know what, I've had enough. So this was, The Queen was basically filmed in 1967, came out in 1968. When it actually, so by that time, by 1970, her friend Lottie LaBeja decided to say, we're gonna give a ball just exclusively for black and Latino women. And I call them women because that's what they were. They were women. You know, we're gonna give a ball just for that. And that's how balls basically started in Harlem, exclusively for black and Latino women. In the name of Crystal LaBeja, 
and that so La Beja is considered the first house of ballroom out of crystal and so ballroom only for three or four years only consisted of basically women that have a trans experience with drag queens and it wasn't until like 1974 when men started to compete men were the backdrop men were the hair designers the artists this, they drew you know made all the dresses they formulated everything but they didn't compete because it was only for those women and then by 1974 men started to compete and that's where it grew with multiple of houses started you know the house of chanel the house of ebony the house of princess uh the house of dorian the house of corey the house of um echelons the house of um votique um princess christian um the house of wong the, i can go on and on and on there were so many different houses so I found it really interesting in the conversation with Derek when you were talking about how subculture can go on to like influence pop culture, the mm. underground affecting the Yeah, for real. I mean, that was something that Derek and I just got lost in. It's such like an interesting topic of how it can have that wider impact. I guess we see it now, decades later as well. And so we were we were talking about some of the key figures in, in mainstream culture that that had ended up kind of bringing it to that that audience, and and naturally Madonna came up, which was which was an interesting one. I mean, I still don't really know exactly how he feels about it, but um, it was definitely good to hear an insider's perspective. Um, so maybe I can just let the audio do the talking, and then everyone else can make their opinion on where he stands with it. The perception was is that always the perception was that Madonna created this thing that had been existent since the 1970s. Madonna sat on the speaker of the Sound Factory Club on 27th Street and watched all the Black and Latino Vogue from four o'clock in the morning to 12 o'clock the next day. That's how it opened the club. It was for, it opened at four in the morning and it closed at 12 on a Sunday. She would sit on the speaker and watch every all the Black and Latino kids vogue all night long. She did this for a whole year. This is when Madonna wasn't really like a nobody. She was somebody, but she wasn't really nobody. And so finally she got to the point where singing, this dance is fucking amazing. You know what I'm saying? And she went to Junior Vasquez, who was the resident DJ, and, and things started to turn right then and there. And she wanted to make this song called Vogue exclusively. But I'm going to go backwards. Before Madonna, there was many artists that made songs that had videos involved. There was Jody Watley. There was Queen Latifah. Jody Watley had a song called Friends with Eric B. and Rakim, rappers, <laughs> where she featured up Vogers. She featured up Derek Extravaganza, Muhammad Omni, uh, Fidel Fields, just on the third. She featured up Vogers in that video, along with hip hop dancers and hip hop artists. Queen Latifah had made a song because Queen Latifah always been out. She never was in the closet. I don't know where people get that from. But of <laughs> course, but she always been out. She always been about the community. And she had a song called Coming to My House. Don't make me wait. That was about ballroom. That wasn't about some man coming into our house. That was about ballroom. Coming to my house. Give me body. You know what I'm saying? She's talking about ballroom. You know? You had a, I'm going to be real with you. Donna Ross, she had a song called, this is 19, we're always talking about 1989 before Madonna. She had a song called Working Overtime. She featured up Vogas in there. Lisa Lisa, um, another artist. There's so many artists that did things that considered a Vogue. It was only because of Madonna had a song called Vogue. 
Honestly, she watched, she saw opportunity, she seized it, and she made it. It's honestly her biggest song to date. You know, if you think about anything other song about her, you'd be like, huh, okay. But Vogue is her Vogue is her stamp. She's never been to a ball ever, ever. Right. She's never been to a ball, a, a, a ball where there was black and Latino there. But she never acknowledges on an interview or says, hey, I sat at the sound factory on the speaker and watched these kids from these houses Vogue for eight hours straight. She never, ever, 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 ever said that. And if she would have said that, I would have said, okay, I got you. But she's yeah. never, ever admitted that, that she got that. Right, it did. It, it, it exposed the community, and people now wanted to come to balls and see, wanted to see this voguing themselves. This thing, it exposed, and it did it for a period of, for a short period of time, and then afterwards, we went right back to normality. You know what I'm saying? By '92, '93, nobody wasn't even talking about Vogue anymore. It wasn't on the charts anymore, and ballroom went back underground. So at this point. Derek turns to me and he's like, Sam, you've gone quiet. I mean, to be honest, like, I didn't even have any questions left to ask. He was just talking away and, and dropping bombs. It, it was one of those ones where I felt like my knowledge only runs so deep. And, and he had given me such a history lesson. I was, I was left speechless. But, you know, my favorite part of the whole conversation was, was where he explained how you could become a legend. And he was saying that, that people become legends by creating moments. A lot of people have their, their definitive moments in ballroom where they have done something that transcends that will never be ever taken away. Those are created, that's how people become legends, by creating moments in mm. ballroom, you know? Not just walking one of the trophy. Anybody can win the trophy. It's about the moments. I always ask people, I say, oh, you're a legend. I was like, give me five of your moments. Give me five moments that I can, I call them bitch, I remember when. <laughs> when I remember when, it was like, I remember when you did this. I remember when you did that. Like, I need five. If I got five moments that no one can ever, that anybody can ever say, I would never ever forget that. Not to say that makes you legend, but that solidifies you in ballroom, you know? When people can give me five moments, you know? Deja as Mystique, Deja jumping off the balcony, you know what I'm saying? Deja as Freddy Krueger, you know what I'm saying? She, that's three right there that nobody would ever forget. You know what I'm saying? That was her moments. you enjoyed that conversation go ahead and subscribe if you did you can connect with us on instagram at trippin.world and make sure you check out our website www.trippin.world for more deep dives into culture creativity and communities from around the globe my name is yasmin thank you for listening stay safe and stay trippin <laughs>